there had to be some sort of pivot from this grassroots nature of bilingual education to make it more appealing to more affluent families. And so that's when you went from being called bilingual education to being called dual immersion. And so that's why you have districts saying dual language immersion, dual language education. They will try to stay away from the B word. And so that's why we use bilingual education every chance we get. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, just wrapping up my 17th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. As always, you can catch us either on YouTube or your favorite podcast streaming app. We want to welcome all of you who might be new to our show and those of you who have been with us for a minute. Welcome back. We love y'all. We're about to get into it, Jeff. But first, I got to bring up, man, it's it's June and this school year, this wild, unprecedented, I'm tired of that word, but this just crazy school year has wrapped up in much of the nation, Jeff. The last day of school has come and gone and... I just feel like we need to celebrate in some kind of big way. It's just, we made it, man. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I feel you. Um, definitely, we made it. Definitely, uh, we, we need some kind of celebration, which this year I feel like should probably just be everybody gets to take like multiple naps a day uh, for, <laughs> <laughs> for the foreseeable future, uh, at least for those folks who do not work year round. Um, you know, in our in our wonderful school systems. Ah. And Manuel, I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to all of my uh, my people in the New York City Department of Education and in, um, you know, some other parts, of course, of the of the kind of mid-Atlantic and Northeast, where for whatever God awful reason, the school year does not end until the end of June every Man. year. And it is ridiculous because you have, you know, school, some schools have no air conditioning and you're sitting in a class on June 20th and it's hot and sticky and gross and... Um, I feel for you, and <laughs> I, see, I see you, uh, New York City schools, and just because everybody else is done and you're still not, um, you know, shout, shout out to you. Yeah, for sure. That's that's wild. And, you know, traditionally, in my 17 years of teaching and in my experience as a student, the last day of school has always been a little bit wild. Usually that's that's the day where that last school bell rings and, and kids run amok. And I remember being a kid and, and seeing seeing folks like dump their their backpacks contents all in the trash. And, and every once in a while, somebody will take their binder with all their papers and just throw all the papers in the air and just make it rain. And I suspect the last day of school hasn't always been the favorite day for a lot of custodians across the country because of the terror of students like just throwing everything away and running away. But I guess this year it's a little different since so much of the school year was technology driven and so many schools are still hybrid or you know don't very don't have very many students in person period. So a little bit of a, a a quiet end to the school year in that sense, unless of course students take their Chromebooks and toss them in the trash, which probably wouldn't be smart. Would be an interesting sign of resistance to this technological age of like stare at your screens all day. But yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. But in any case, shout out to everybody who has wrapped up their school year. Truly phenomenal. 
truly phenomenal work that educators and students have done to completely reinvent their practice in the midst of a pandemic. So brutal school year, but phenomenal work from educators and students and families across the nation adapting to our changing reality. But in any case, Jeff, what do we have in store for today's episode? What's on the agenda? Yeah, man. Well, we got a good one for everybody today, of course, as usual, but our, uh, what is it now, a- approaching uh, four-year streak, Manuel, of uh, of Damn. nothing but the, but the dopest guests in yep. education joining us. Streak alive and well as of today, Manuel. Um, and we actually have a treat because we have two incredible guests coming on to help us explore a topic that, frankly, we probably haven't spent enough time talking about um, over the course of, um, of the last few years. Um, so we have the wonderful um, co-authors of a new book um, titled En Comunidad, um, and they are Dr. Um, Luz Yadira Herrera, and Dr. Carla Espana, amazing educators from, uh, frankly, from opposite ends of the country, uh, from California and New York, um, but who have come together to write a really fascinating text about um, some of the uh, kind of misunderstandings uh, that I think people have around how schools should engage and educate um, bilingual students, students who are learning English, um, and you know, students who are quote unquote language minorities um, in our public school system. So um, gonna be a fascinating conversation um, with uh, Dr. Yadira Herrera and Dr. Espana. Can't wait to have them on. You definitely don't wanna miss it, folks. Yeah, for sure, sounds dope. Can't wait. But of course, up first, we have our Do Now where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, it's uh, it's actually my favorite way, uh, frankly, that we do the Do Now. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like what's your favorite finger, you know? But uh, it is my favorite way. It's uh, We got a lexicon, man. We're going to dig, dig into some key vocabularies, key terms today. Dope, dope. All right, let's get into it. All right, Jeff, the first term for today is um, the crib. Mm, okay, all right. Keeping it, um, you know, um, uh, colloquial uh, today, which I appreciate. Um, so the crib, you know, like um, going back to the crib and chill, watch the game, you know, Lakers beat the Supersonics or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yes, good reference, good reference. I love it. <laughs> Thought you might um, appreciate that. Yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And this story is it, or this term is in reference to a story, um, really a conversation about what school is going to look like this coming fall, and whether or not families will be allowed to let their students, their kids, stay home at the crib and continue with virtual learning. So so let's get into it. We picked up this story courtesy of Greg Topo for The 74, and he reports that as vaccinations proceed and as pandemic restrictions decline, political leaders are doing their best to signal that school is happening in person this fall. For example, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy recently stated, quote, we are expecting Monday through Friday in person, every school, every district. 
However, school districts nationwide are grappling with continued suspicion and dissatisfaction over how they handled the pandemic, especially in communities of color. And that's forcing many districts to offer families the option of enrolling their children online this fall and continuing learning from home or from the crib. One district in Colorado's Jefferson County, shout out to our Colorado peoples, uh, they recently announced an online option for the fall due to high demand. District spokesperson Cameron Bell said that more than 700 students have enrolled so far, with at least 1,000 expected by August. In Montgomery County, the largest school district in Maryland, officials are developing a virtual academy to address, well, quote, to address both the students who may want to remain virtual for health reasons, but also those who have thrived in virtual learning. One recent poll found that nearly 30% of parents would rely on virtual learning indefinitely going forward. And recent survey data suggests that Black, Latinx, and Asian parents are more likely than their white peers to say they prefer online learning. An Ohio State University political scientist by the name of Vladimir Kogan cautioned that this could open the door to a two-tiered education system, a bigger functional one for those whose parents are comfortable sending them to school and a smaller inferior one for, quote, kids whose parents are too scared and keep them home, end quote. So Jeff, you thought the debate over in-person versus online learning was over now that vaccinations and, and all that stuff is happening. But here we are next fall. Another question mark. Will students be allowed to be virtually learning even with the pandemic seemingly coming to some level, some semblance of of an end? What do you think? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts about this, Manuel, and I guess the first one is I think some of the panic um, that is trying to be perhaps uh, ginned up a little bit um, by these stories to me feels a bit unwarranted. I'm actually personally not that worried. Okay, <laughs> now uh, not worried I, you know, about pandemic wise, or not worried no, that no, no, parents no. will yeah. stay home. Yeah, thank you. So um, not worried that this, uh, you know, reduction in students and families opting for in-person instruction means a permanent shift away from uh, from interest in public school gotcha. from kids and families, which I think is part of the like, ooh, boogeyman that's, that's kind of being talked about in, um, you know, in by the prevalence of stories about this, right? Like, oh, enrollment is down overall and, th and this kind of thing. We'll see how that plays out. We are still in right now, particularly for children in this country, um, all of whom under the age of 12 are unvaccinated right now. We are fully still in the pandemic, right? right. Um, there are variants spreading. There are, you know, no vaccinated kids under the age of 12 and still, frankly, not that many vaccinated kids of any age. And so, like, it, of course, things are you know, are sort of off right now. P parents are feeling apprehensive and teachers are still feeling apprehensive, um, of course. Now, given the rollout of the vaccine and the, you know, news that it's available, uh, you know, uh, over the last month or so here to children 12 and up, um, and the fact that, you know, I think there's going to be a huge spike in child vaccinations over the next few months leading up to next school year. Um, I think it's too early for us to get like deeply, deeply worried. And the reality is the supports from the government that have um, kept 
families from you know being utterly destitute, right? Even even the ineptitude with which we have rolled those out as a country, um, and the immorality in terms of how small those resources have been relative to other wealthy countries around the world. Um, you know, we have had a situation where families have been able to keep younger kids home and not be destitute in the street right now, right? For the most part. Um, but some of that is going to change, right? Like as they pull back on unemployment benefits and, and things that are very likely to um, happen here in the coming months. So I think what we're going to see, Manuel, most likely is that a critical mass of teenagers are vaccinated and go back to school um, because of it. And then, uh, of course, a critical mass of younger kids um, go back to school because A, daycare is super expensive, and B, families are going to have to return to work because we're not going to offer them any type of support if they don't, right? And so I think that's the squeeze that's coming on American families, and as a result, folks are going to go back to school. Now, that said, I do think something we've learned during the pandemic is that for a slice of students, when the school system organizes itself well enough, they can thrive in an online learning environment, or they can be free from some of the pernicious effects um, of public school, uh, bullying, uh, racism, you know, those sorts of things, right? Um, that, uh, that families find appealing, right? So I do think there's going to be a demand, a greater demand, especially for secondary age students, right? So like older middle school students through high school students, who can stay at home, right? If their parents trust them, they can stay at home and don't need daycare, right? Um, but I think that's still gonna be somewhat of a niche, uh, you know, long-term, I think it's still gonna be somewhat of a niche clientele because the reality is uh, online learning isn't great. And this article talks about like how abysmally bad, you know, online schools, many of them, you know, newer online charter schools, um, across the country are in terms of their outcomes, far lower graduation rates, you know, um, that sort of thing. Now, people could argue that like the kids who've been attending those schools are self-selecting because they were maybe folks who struggled already in school. That may be true, right? I'm, I'm not necessarily here to argue that. But point being, online school is simply inferior to in-person school when in-person school is healthy and functional because learning is a social process and you need social interaction. And no matter how good your Zoom classroom is, it is not as good as real life interaction in terms of the effects on your brain, right? And this is why we have kids who are way more, you know, connected than any generation before, but are depressed and cutting themselves and, you know, these sorts of things because um, that's not real human connection on social media, right? Um, and Zoom, I think, is in the same, you know, general realm or, or virtual instruction is in the same general realm of like interaction that's interaction, but not real interaction in terms of bonding, closeness, um, you know, uh, self-discovery and finding new, you know, new things out about yourself with, with your peer group and that sort of thing. You can't do it the same. So I think there's going to be a permanent demand for in-person school and um, we should hold off on conclusions until, you know, maybe later, later in the fall this year when, when we kind of see where things are at. Yeah, well, I'm curious about just the question of whether or not schools should have an option for families who would prefer online in the first place. And I think that's something that is interesting in terms of, for one grade level, I think obviously 
the younger students are going to be the ones who are most likely and perhaps most in need of being in person for, for their learning. But I think there really are serious concerns among families across the nation, especially in communities of color, about the quality of instruction that happens in person in the first place. And those concerns have been there since way before the pandemic. So for those students for whom online learning has worked out very well, and I, of course, I definitely, like a lot of teachers, I have certain students who I haven't seen in person all year, but they've really been doing great online. For me, the question is, should they be allowed to continue online if that's their preference and that's their parents' preference? And in this case, I'm talking about high schoolers. And right now I'm definitely leaning towards, yes, districts should have that option, at least as an option, because for one, we don't, we're not totally clear of the pandemic yet, but also just it overall in person is certainly better, but that doesn't mean it's better for everybody. And if we're going to allow uh, parents to choose what schools their kids go to, because you know a lot of districts are open enrollment, like we talked about in our last episode, we have charter schools, we have private schools. If we're going to allow that level of choice, then I think offering online learning is just another menu item for parents to make the decision that works best for their for their kids. And I'm definitely not a, a, an advocate overall of quote unquote school choice in you know in terms of the the usual segment of folks in the education world who who argue for school choice. But I am definitely a proponent of the structures that have been built over the course of the school year to offer online learning. Those structures that have been built don't just do away with them. I think it makes sense to have an option for those families that would prefer to stay online for a little while. I don't think those students should be taught by the same teachers who are doing the in-person things. So like, I don't wanna see a roster of like 37 kids and it say like, oh, and these 10 are virtual learning because I don't think teachers for sure um, are capable of like balancing the two very well. But if there are a segment of families in a district and there's, um, a, a demand for online learning, why not allow some teachers to do the online teaching thing with them and really hone in with them? I just see it as an option that makes sense. I know there's, there's, I know there's folks who don't want that option because they think that's just, you know, because all the reasons that you said, but also some other reasons, I think some folks just really don't trust that whatever's happening at the home is what's best for the kid. But I don't see a problem with it just being an option for now until we're really, really sure what the future looks like. So I'm a proponent of it being yeah. an option. So, yeah, I, I hear that. I do think what's interesting about what you said, though, Manuel, is like, who's going to teach the kids who opt into a virtual schooling setting? Right. And I would I would argue don't have data behind this, but I'm just going to make make the case that the reason some kids have thrived in virtual school this year has a lot to do with the fact that they're attending their school virtually. Right. So to do what you just said, which is not have, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Rustin teaching simultaneously 25 kids in his class and eight kids on a computer screen or whatever. Right. Um, to not have that kind of overburdening, uh, you know, venue of instruction for teachers. Uh, what that means is this, the district is going to have to create a virtual school, right? Either a separate virtual school or fund, which I don't necessarily think they could do um, easily, at least, um, and a, an attached virtual school for all the, the existing schools, right? Um, and I think that, like, budgetarily and in terms of staff assignments and, you know, work contract and stuff, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to do. What they're going to wind up doing, in my opinion, is just creating more virtual schools that are that are part of the district, right? 
Um, and that could be good, but I think that changes the equation a lot in terms of like, what does it mean to be a kid in school? It's one thing to attend, you know, your school, Manuel, virtually. It's another thing to drop out, not drop out, but disenroll in your school and send your kid to a different school that doesn't even like physically exist, right? Um, it doesn't have the community, the history, the traditions, the you know, et cetera, that you're a part of, right? Now you're a kid who goes to this other school. Is that what families want? I don't know. Probably not a lot of them, but probably some of them, I would say. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, I, I definitely am curious, all the infrastructure that we built for online learning, well, I mean, we're not just going to scrap it, right? So then, I, I don't know. I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about the, the next 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I, I think this, yes. the virtual learning aspect of education that we knew was coming, we knew for years there would be a day where students are learning through their computers or whatever. Um, that day came um, for reasons that are, were not optimal, but I don't think it's going to be we're going to totally unwind it and take it all the way back to what it was like before. So I just feel like yeah. that element is always going to be there. And I'm not against any family that chooses that element. Um, yeah, I, know, I, get, I guess we shall see. I guess we shall see. But I'm definitely yeah. curious what some of our viewers and listeners um, think about that question. You know, I'm definitely leaning towards have it there as an option. I definitely hear the arguments against it being there as an option or against it being a need in the first place. So I'm definitely curious to hear from our listeners and our viewers. But Jeff, we do have another term to get to today. All right. So the first term was was the crib. What do we got next for our second term? Well, Manuel, second term is redonkulous. Mm. That too is colloquial. <laughs> um, usually, usually that's sort of a reference to a ridiculous nature of somebody's um, backside, I guess. And we're not really that type of that type of podcast here, Jeff. So I'm really curious where this story is going because I don't, I don't think we're going to talk about backsides, right? What are we talking about, Jeff? What are we talking well, that's, about? That's interesting. I don't know if I've actually heard it referred to uh, the, the backside per se. Oh, that's, but, how, that's the only uh, way I've heard it. Oh, okay. All right. That's, uh, you know, West Coast, Midwest. Maybe we just, uh, you know, different, different, um, <laughs> different vocabulary. Uh, so Urban Dictionary defines redonkulous as ex essentially extremely ridiculous. And uh, we have a story that is extremely ridiculous and coincidentally, Manuel, also has to do with backsides. Just probably a different construction of dealing yeah. with backsides than you uh, or others um, have been familiar with. But uh, I will just word. real quick, just to interject a little bit, um, not that Urban Dictionary isn't like... <laughs> Fully vetted for the streets, but redonkulous, that, that donk part is a reference to donkey donk, which is a reference to donkey, which is a reference to particular physical characteristics of a backside. So redonkulous, the way I grew up in South Sacramento, usually was a reference to somebody's donkey donk, which, you know, we're not going to... Uh -huh. Explain further, but anyways, yeah. go ahead with the story, man. We talking about yeah, education. What we, got? Like, what we got? You know, heard the badonka donk. Um, you know, hashtag uh, patriarchy. We're we're moving <laughs> yes, on exactly. from that right now, folks. Damn, immediately, uh, yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay, so this story uh, does have to do with backsides. Just a. a Something entirely different regarding backsides. <laughs> uh, so this story is brought to us by Mark uh, Kierleber in the 74. Shout out to Mark. We've had a, a couple stories from him recently. And uh, let's get into this. So 
A, uh, when a Florida elementary school principal was caught on video recently spanking a six-year-old girl with a wooden paddle last month, it sparked national outrage and a criminal investigation. Florida is one of 19 states in the country that allows corporal punishment in schools, but it's prohibited in Hendry County, where the little girl was beaten, and state law requires educators, educators to follow local rules. That, however, was not enough for state prosecutors to hold Principal Melissa Carter responsible for any wrongdoing. They instead questioned the credibility of the girl's mother, who is an undocumented immigrant who actually filmed the campus incident and shared it with local television station WINK. Um, I see what you did there, wink. Um, so, years of data have shown that students of color and those with disabilities are disproportionately subjected to corporal punishment, a practice that goes on despite a substantial body of research showing its harmful effects on youth development. Among them is a 2017 study in the peer-reviewed Journal of Pediatrics, which found that children who are spanked are far more likely to abuse intimate partners later in life. Nationally, educators used corporal punishment on K-12 students nearly 100,000 times during the 2017-18 school year, which is presumably the most recent data they had available for this story, according to the Federal Civil Rights Data Collection Service. While educators' use of corporal punishment has declined significantly in recent years, the practice remains prevalent almost exclusively in southern states where it is allowed. Mississippi, oh... You know, cha channeling the words of Nina Simone, Mississippi goddamn, uh, was the national leader, with, educa with, uh, with educators there subjecting students to corporal punishment nearly 28,000 times in one year. Now, said attorney Brent Probinski, who represents the girl's mother who filmed her child being beaten by the principal with a wooden paddle. Um, quote, it's against the law to impose corporal punishment on prisoners. It's against the law to impose corporal punishment on children in youth detention facilities. It's against the law to impose corporal punishment on your cat or your dog at home um, or your horse. But you can do it to a little child. So it needs to end. It's barbaric and it opens the door to abuse. End quote. Manuel Rustin, this is, I think, the maybe the third time we have reported on corporal punishment as part of a Do Now story over the last few years. Every time we talk about it, I'm like, what is happening in the world? I cannot imagine as a teacher, an assistant principal, a principal, a district level administrator, I cannot imagine holding a child and beating them at school. It is the craziest thing I can think of that an educator Maybe not the craziest, but it's right up there with the craziest things that an educator could do as a yeah. part of their job with a kid, like deliberately. What's going on, Manuel? Yeah, you're right. We've talked about this particular issue a few times during Do Now Stories. One of those times was another lexicon. I don't, it was maybe two years ago, I don't know. And the lexicon term for that story was whooping because we were shocked to learn that teachers were delivering whoopings to students in class. And I believe, I assume, I don't remember the particular details of those conversations, but I assume we probably advocated for a change in these laws so that it's, so that it's just not permitted. But what really bothers me about this particular story is that the, the incident that initiated this recent story took place in a school in a district where corporal punishment is prohibited. Like that school where this poor little girl was whooped in front of her mom who didn't know what to do, this undocum undocumented mother who 
doesn't speak English and was sitting there not knowing what's going on and who decided to go ahead and film it because she didn't really know what to say. Like it wasn't supposed to happen at that school. And for deputies in this case, or I think it was deputies, whoever in this case, whatever law enforcement in this case said that like, they're not gonna press charges because the mother didn't seem to like stop it or the mother seemed to condone it is like, like ridiculous. I didn't know that, Jeff, I didn't know that if a person condones something that allows somebody else to break the law, I didn't realize that her condoning the teacher or principal in this case to break the law makes it so that teacher or principal doesn't face judgment for breaking the law. I didn't know that. I didn't know you could just condone something illegal and then it's okay. But in any case, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I know hate is a very strong word, but it's it's the word, the only word I can think of right here because I'm thinking of how many other folks out there have had their children subjected to this sort of treatment and either didn't know or didn't know what to do about it. The the article points out the disproportionate impact that this has on students with disabilities, on black and brown students specifically, and it's just terrible. And I was surprised to learn in this article that this isn't just in regions like down south, like Chicago public schools just uh, issued a, a settlement of something like $400,000 or something for educators who were um, using corporal punishment. In, their, in, in Chicago, and in that case, there was like 226 cases of corporal punishment in Chicago public schools in the year 2017, 2018, which is just just nuts. This is, this is gross, man, this is gross. I don't even need to get into like the research or the science behind like how physically punishing a student doesn't like actually make them better students. It doesn't actually contribute to their um, healthy, positive growth as young, loving humans. Um, it's, just, it's just terrible, man. And this, going back to our last story about the online option, I don't know. I think this is just another case. And this is, you know, it's hopefully an outlier, but it's another case of of why a family might decide to keep their kid at home because like, I don't know what the schools are doing and I don't know how to advocate right. They they seem to like not respect my voice as a parent. So I just sit there on the sidelines and you know what? Nah, I'd rather just my kid log in and not get beat. So there's that. But also it also highlights the the parallels or the similarities between the teaching profession and law enforcement. Um, here's a case of perhaps perhaps this principal is a bad apple because I don't know that I've ever inter interacted with a teacher in person who would ever even consider spanking a kid or whooping a kid or any of that. But they exist, they're out there, and I'm going to call them out for sure. I'm gonna advocate for laws statewide, nationwide to make this not happen. And I'm certainly not gonna just like say like, well, this is an isolated incident, we're all good here. Like, nah, man, like educators in too many cases hold on to too much power and inflict too much pain and trauma on young people, either as a flex or as a way of correcting that young person. And it's nasty, it's gross. It shouldn't have any place in our profession, anywhere, any school system. Um, leading with love and humanity and helping that student understand what they did wrong and why they shouldn't do that. And you know, all these other options that are on the table, go with those because beating that kid yeah. in front of their parents who apparently didn't know what to say or what to do that's just gross, yeah. man. That's just gross. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross is a perfect word for it. That probably should have been our, our lexicon term um, today for this for this story, Manuel. And for me, with this with this issue, like I recognize that there are cultural differences in different communities in our in our nation, um, True. and frankly, different communities around the world regarding you know the sort of 
rightness or righteousness of using corporal punishment with your children, okay? And I actually am not that interested in getting into that particular debate in terms of how parents treat their kids at home. Like, we can have that discussion, but, like, separate topic. We are talking about an entity of the state yes. in, in a school, okay? At least yes. in a public school. And or a sort of, like, a private entity that is granted the purview to perform a function of the state, which is educating kids, right? And in that context, there is no... Like, think it through, people. We do not want the state to be whooping our children, dude. Like, this is a bad, bad policy. There is nothing that can come from this but oppression. You know, think about a uh, a predatory type of person who knows that they can get their hands on kids' backsides to spank them or hit them with a paddle. Like, this is sick and perverse type of behavior, Manuel. And it is also no surprise that the last vestiges of this in our country are concentrated in the deep south in this country. And let's connect the dots here. The prevalence of corporal punishment by the state in any type of way is absolutely an extension of the imperialist, white supremacist, slave society project that European countries projected across the Western Hemisphere, across Africa and Asia, and performed as a means of control on the peoples of color and indigenous peoples of the entire planet. Okay? There is a connection between... That's yeah, more critical, ahead, race critical theory. Yes, exactly, exactly. There is a connection between the chopping off of the hands of the people in the Congo who didn't bring enough rubber or gold or whatever to their Belgian overlords and the holding of a child down as... It, folks got to go watch the video. <laughs> got to go watch the video of a school in Florida with another school staff member holding this child and positioning the child's backside so that the principal could take a wooden paddle, an instrument that she had on hand, like it's some kind of freaking frat induction yep. and beat this child. OK, um, now, I mean, was the child is the child dead or any? You know, of course not. Right. But this is a traumatic experience for this child. This is a modern day expression of a set of values that was oppressively put onto us by a slave society, man. And that is what it is. That's what I'm calling it. It's, this should not exist in public schools, in any school, period, end of story. Well, Jeff, that was a whole lot of critical race theory there, Jeff. You're going to get our video, our podcast here banned <laughs> in, in all those red states that are banning critical race theory. Um, I will point out, perhaps, perhaps, one way to initiate change here is for us to have more educators of color because I suspect I suspect a lot of these um, a lot of these areas if it was if it was a, a black teacher issuing um, this corporal punishment on a young white student I suspect I suspect Jeff I don't know I don't know but I think I, folks will have a problem with that this the, the the educators depicted in this video man well I I mean I guess I don't know for sure what their race is but they appeared to be educators of color to me did, did well they might be the but in this case the student is not so I'm I'm talking about like if it was if it was you or me doing this to a first grade white girl in some ah, yes. rural okay. conservative place I I just don't think that folks yeah. would be very as nah. as accepting of that as they'd be, they they'd be ready to, be to have video. a lynching dude okay i mean this this is how entwined in the white supremacy it is man this is crazy yeah man redonkulous i guess we should say it is it is for sure yeah. all right all right well that was a lot that was a lot 
a lot going on in this this education world, which is why we are here on All of the Above to you know, examine some headlines and and talk through some of what's going on. And of course, all of our recent episodes, we've covered so many stories, folks, and we would love to hear from you. You could, you know, shoot us a message, shoot us a comment on any of our social media. Let us know what you think about, about any of these stories. But up next, we have a super dope seminar. So we're going to get to that. All right. Stay tuned. Hey, OTA family, this is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, just checking in with you for a second, just to reiterate the importance of leaving us a little review if you are listening to the podcast on the go. Those reviews really go a long way. Five stars would be very much appreciated. If you could write something up, we will love that too. And if you do, I mean, send us a screenshot of it. We'll send you back a all of the above sticker for your laptop or notebook or whatever you want to use it for. All right, folks, we love y'all. Let's get back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today. And we have two incredible guests with us, fully keeping intact our uh, four-year streak of having only the dopest guests here on All the Above. Um, as mentioned earlier, they are none other than Dr. Lucia Dida Herrera and Dr. Carla Espana coming to us uh, from Central California and New York City today. Uh, so uniting coasts um, here in our conversation. And we are going to be digging into really just some fascinating issues regarding um, how our schools can and should um, serve our bilingual students and students who are learning English. So uh, welcome to the show, um, Dr. Yadida Herrera and Dr. Espana. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having us and for your invite. It's really wonderful to be here with you all today. And of course, to be here with our, with my hermana en la lucha, Carla España. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. So thank you all for, for all the interviews, all the resources you share. It's a joy to be here. Wonderful. Well, uh, let's tell our audience a little bit about our two guests today. Um, Dr. Lucia Dida Herrera is a teacher, researcher, and author. Dr. Herrera has over 15 years of experience in the education of emergent bilinguals in both mainstream and bilingual settings. She is currently an assistant professor of multilingual and multicultural education in the Kremen School of Education and Human Development at California State University, Fresno, where she also runs a bilingual teacher residency program in partnership with a local school district. Dr. Herrera's teaching and research are in culturally and linguistically sustaining pedagogy, translanguaging, critical pedagogies, and bilingual education policy. Um, we are also joined by Dr. Carla Espana. She is a middle grade teacher, literacy consultant, researcher, and author. Her love of stories and teaching comes from her roots in Chile. She is currently an instructor and fieldwork advisor in the Bilingual and Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages program at Bank Street Graduate School of Education in New York City. Her teaching journey began with sixth grade bilingual students in Harlem, and she has a bachelor's in communication from NYU, a master's of divinity from Princeton, and master's in childhood education with a bilingual extension from Hunter College and a PhD in urban education from the Graduate Center um, at the City 
the University of New York. And together, folks, our two guests um, are co-founders of En Comunidad Collective and co-authors of En Comunidad Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Bilingual Latinx Students. And if you are not already impressed enough, they are going to be speaking together at the upcoming, upcoming Dismantling White Supremacy Culture in Schools conference being put on by none other than friend of the show, Joe Truss, um, and featuring not only these two amazing guests, but former All the Above guests, Goldie Muhammad, and heavy hitters such as Ibram X. Kendi and Bettina Love. That conference is June 14th to 18th. Go to dismantlewsc.com to register and hear more from our amazing guests today. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Man, Jeff, that, that was a lot of dopeness in those bios. That was, it was. Like a it lot was. of dopeness, a lot of brilliance. <laughs> and I just feel just blessed to be in the company of such brilliance. And yeah, that's all right. So look, two days ago, I had a student, true story, walk into my class, smiling, beaming with a certificate. And he had a little trophy that he got. And it was for reclassifying. After several years of trying, he was reclassified. And in California and a lot of states, our service towards English language learners in the education system often has been through the lens of trying to help students reclassify. And we thought we would just start there. What have we historically been doing well? And what have we historically gotten wrong about our approach to, to serving students who are learning English and students who are bilingual? How about we start with Dr. Yadira Herrera? Yeah. Thanks, Manuel, for that question. It's so interesting because it's all, I mean, it's obviously all political, right? Um, I'm a parent myself in, in California school, public schools. And when you first come in, and this happens in New York City too, that's where I started my teaching career, you, uh, a parent or family caregivers are asked to complete a home language survey. And that home language survey will determine what track your child will be put in, right? Um, and so essentially in that home language survey, there's no real space to consider a, a child who may already be bilingual. You have to fit into one box or the other. And if you fit into the box that says you speak a home language other than English at home, then you're, you're pretty much stuck in this track where you're tested every spring for your, you know, for your English proficiency every year, starting in kinder actually kindergarten or tk so it's it's ongoing and it can go from tk all the way up to high school as as you you know mentioned but the thing about these tests is that i mean if we look at them closely we could already and we already know this um students whose only language might be english may have trouble passing these as well right so how does it how does one test how does one test really measure all of that, all of what students know? And also, of course, this test is all in English and it's, it's, it is meant to, to measure English proficiency, but it's missing a whole lot, right? Um, if you're just assessing a student in one of their languages and you're going to get a very limited amount of, um, of understanding of what the child actually understands and knows. So that's, that's number one, uh, one of the biggest problems with this entire system. In addition to, again, forcing people to fit into this one box and not really recognizing children that are already bilingual um, or emerging in their bilingualism. Carla, what do you think? Do you want to add anything to that? 
Yeah, um, this question reminds me of my own journey. I came from Chile when I was five and uh, came with my mom to New York and I was enrolled in a school in Queens. And at the time that school did not have any bilingual programming. So they, they only had English as a second language at the time. Now it's called ENL, English as a new language. And what that meant, what the way that I was labeled and classified in that school, it tr um, transferred into um, me being pulled out of uh, regular programming in school and whatever was going on during the day. And they would take me to another room with other students. It was, I just remember being in a closet mm -hmm. on the floor doing some worksheets, right? Um, Years later, now decades later, we have uh, bilingual programming and it's robust and they do all these beautiful thematic projects. And one of my own grad students from Hunter College um, uh, was teaching there and I got to visit and watch her teach. And it was just beautiful to see the changes happening. So I think um, historically what we've gotten wrong with this method of classification is that you're starting to classify students from a deficit lens, um, which is the example that, that Luz was giving. And I think what we can do in this moment to get these things right is start looking at bilingual and multilingual children through a lens of uh, translanguaging or thinking about their dynamic language practices, right? And so that's not only in the ways we classify, but also in the ways we teach um, and also in the ways that we assess throughout the year. So um, I'm, I've been excited and I've been hopeful because I've been seeing some changes, but I really think it's important to consider historically, um, at least I know from my own experience, um, and then besides from the research, uh, it's important to notice the impact that these kinds of assessments and classifications have had on children. Because I, to this day, I'm, I live through the impact of that kind of schooling. Yeah. yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up actually, because the student that I was just talking about, he, he was beaming, but not because he felt like he accomplished something great, but because, you know, according to him, he finally got out of that, um, what, he what, what he was referring to as like an EOD space, because he was in English classes that he knew were below his, his capabilities level, and he was glad to finally, like, have that off him. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. And, you know, and for high school students, it takes up so much of your time. That was my own experience, too. I didn't get re reclassified until high school. It just took forever. But I got to miss out on art. I got to miss out on like all of these extra, you know, electives that I could have taken because I, they needed to give me more or they wanted to me to have more English and more English. And it was just, it leaves very little space for other kind of outlets. So, yeah. And I think that says a lot, right, about the ways people define language teaching and language learning. Because how much language and and, and just um, fluency practice happens in art and performance, right. and there's that's that's so sad that that's what we're t removing children from those spaces in order to do what to do like the grammar worksheets that I have to do, right. you know, and decontextualizing language, right? We we can learn, we can add to our um, linguistic repertoire through all of these experiences. Mm. Yeah, it's so, so fascinating to hear you both speak on this and, and just making me think of the number of people I know who, you know, have immigrated to this country and went through the process of, of learning English and talked about the importance of television, music, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just the sort of social experience of life to actually uh, developing fluency in the language. And I, I don't know if I've ever heard any, anyone say, you know, it was that double block of English that I had that like really, uh, <laughs> you know, inspired me to, um, you know, to like ramp up my learning of this of this new language. So um, 
interesting uh, tidbit there. But I want to actually uh, jump back to um, Dr. Espana, a, a phrase you used a moment ago, uh, which was um, translanguaging. And you both uh, published your new book, um, En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Latinx Bilingual Students, um, which is out now, um, and is uses that term, makes the case for translanguaging as something that um, should be happening in our schools that are serving bilingual um, students and students who are learning English. So I'm wondering if you can, um, uh, and I, I guess I'll hand this to you first, Dr. Espana, can maybe expound upon what does that term translanguaging mean? Why is this uh, something that we should be learning about, practicing, um, employing in our, in our schools and with our students? Uh, so I'll start with an example when I was teaching sixth grade. I was a sixth grade bilingual Spanish English teacher, first in a transitional bilingual program and then in a dual language bilingual program. And I taught students from Puerto Rico, Mexico, um, a lot of countries from Central America and Dominican Republic. And let me tell you, my students from the Dominican Republic taught me so much Spanish all different kinds of Spanish. And there was like regional varieties of Spanish from different parts of Dominican Republic. And my very limited Spanish from Chile was just amplified. And I was learning all these different ways to call things. And every day I was like writing down notes and I had my charts with like Spanish from Chile, Spanish from Dominican Republic. We would use all of those features of our linguistic repertoire and it was very dynamic and fluid in our classroom. So if I were, you know, reading a book and it was in English and suddenly we were having conversations in Spanish, we had words from all over the place to call things that we would see in the book. The term translanguaging is a way to describe that dynamic language practice that my students and I were engaging in because we're looking at language as um, the language practices of bilingual and multilingual people as we all have this like one language repertoire and we're selecting features of different kinds of these named languages um, that we employ in different contexts in our lives, right? And I'm just appreciative all the time that my students were, were teaching me so much. And then as a teacher, I was also applying translanguaging pedagogy because translanguaging pedagogy is a way to uh, teach because not only if I had a, a read aloud and I'm reading, you know, let's say my papi has a motorcycle by Isabel Quintero and it's in English, I noticed that on page one, the phrase when Isabel Quintero um, describes, you know, her, her dad and his motorcycle and, the, and what she's learning from that, I see the word cariño in the same sentence as words that are describing the motorcycle and cariños in Spanish in a book in English. So I can look at how an author uses language to convey feelings, to convey something important. I could teach that to students. I can have students discuss using their full language repertoire, can have them write notes, present. And so translanguaging is not only a, a framework that we can look at language without this language separation, um, and it's more dynamic, but it's also a way to describe the communicative practices of bilingual, multilingual people and the way we teach, right? So that's been exciting for me to have this approach to teaching and something to call this amazing, um, really complex way that my students were just making me a better teacher. And I just wanted to add, you know, this is already happening in, happening in our classrooms. Uh, right, like Carla mentioned, this is something that our students, our kids are already doing. And some of Ophelia Garcia's latest work 
shows that even when we're engaging engaging with perhaps a monolingual text, we're still bringing our whole selves in. We're bringing in our whole entire linguistic repertoire to make meaning and make sense of what we're uh, learning and reading about. And so this is already happening. And this is what Ophelia Garcia and uh, Kate Seltzer and Susana Ibarra Johnson in their book called the Translanguaging Corriente. It's something that's always present. So it's up to us as educators how we can acknowledge that and create a, a very intentional space to support that dynamic language practice, uh, practices. But it hasn't, let me tell you, it's not, it's not, sometimes some spaces haven't been very welcoming to this approach. And uh, we, because our work is, is a lot in teacher education, um, we've visited schools where we've had not only principals, but also um, superintendents and sire, like districts being told at different levels, people are being told, we are not allowing that. Like, because the traditional approach has been very much about language separation and very much relying on very dated research that would look at students uh, learning English as, as if they had these different language systems. And you have like the very separate English day in a dual language program to a very separate like Spanish day and you cannot mix. Like I visited um, in Sunnyside, Queens. And if you know anything about Sunnyside, Queens, there's like many languages represented, like Jackson Heights and all these other neighborhoods. And I visited one of my grad students and she was doing a math lesson and it's a, a Spanish day because that's what they had it separated as. And this student wants to share their process, but they don't know how to how to describe it in Spanish. So they're stuck and they quiet down. This is first grade. And she says, oh, ask your buddy. So the person next to them, another child also has no idea how to describe this in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think the next move was? Like, oh, you think, oh, maybe we ask the table or can let's problem solve together. What words would we use? No, the teacher was like, okay, well, you couldn't do it. This is how you say it. And um, there was no way like, oh, let's try and let's say it in English or let's help translate, let's problem solve. And when we talked about that, she said, oh, my principal told me I'm not allowed to, to allow them to switch. So mm -hmm. even once you say that, oh, to allow to switch, you're already coming from this perspective of language being very separate and there's no dynamic language use. There's no like one language repertoire. And it was, um, it was it's been for me really interesting to see the different perspectives of language and how they come across in a school from curriculum decisions, text-based um, selections, uh, to the decisions that this teacher had to make, right? And what she felt that she was learning at the university with me about like dynamic language use. And especially to make a field child, make a, a child feel good about themselves <laughs> compared to the other messages they were receiving from administration and where that messaging was coming from for that administrator as well. Wow, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, so when we reflect back on the last year or so, that we obviously were struck by a pandemic that has greatly impacted educational services for students globally, and it hasn't impacted students equally, for sure. We know some segments of our student population have been impacted um, more negatively than others when it comes to trying to learn and, and, and grow and prosper during this pandemic. So in terms of the impact of pandemic schooling on our bilingual and multilingual students, what, what, what effects have you seen in terms of how the pandemic has impacted them? And what, what concerns do you have about the ongoing impact of pandemic schooling on our language learners? I think I can start and maybe Carla, you can help me out. But um, I just, you know, I, I've been, of course, we've been hearing a lot of conversation around this, right? And I, and the biggest 
thing that's coming up is this concept of a learning loss, right? Which um, can be very problematic. Um, we have to think about the way that we are, first of all, value, valuing um, knowledge and what kind of knowledge we recognize, right? And validate. And um, I think one of the things that we can't do is try to, uh, you know, start just assessing students as soon as they come back and, you know, seeing what kind of, you know, whatever quote unquote gaps they may have. I think that's the wrong move. I think we have to focus on, you know, the socio-emotional aspect of the children. We have to be able to focus on, you know, and in, in, actually in my, in, in my own son's case, he hasn't seen his classmates, obviously. Uh, he's still fully virtual, so he hasn't seen them in over a year. So I think the first thing is introduce, you know, together as a classroom community, like you have to build relationships, um, uh, connections with each other. And I think that's where we start. I don't think that we have to jump into any kind of assessments or anything like that. I think we have to start with building relationships and community and then go from there and, um, and think about ways to, to uh, bring in some meaningful instruction. And we love to use children's literature in our work and how can we use children's literature to help children process some of the many things that they have, we have all experienced and, and how can we create uh, a rich learning experience just from that alone, just to begin with. Carla, did you want to add something? Yeah, I, I'll add the, from my observations of visiting uh, schools in over the past year, uh, virtually and, and across bilingual and English medium classrooms, um, I've noticed some great changes. So I'll share some, some you know, life-giving <laughs> observations and hope. I think one of the, the things I noticed is that a lot of curriculum for, um, in my case, language arts classrooms that I was visiting um, has been very scripted, white, monolingual curriculum that has been given to schools. And in some spaces, teachers are given curriculum with um, a sense of agency and said, hey, take this and modify it. And in other spaces, it hasn't. And so that was part of my, my one of the research studies I did was how an, an ENL teacher in a sixth grade writing classroom decided to make the curriculum her own, um, translating texts and providing more of a bilingual and multilingual setting for that. And that's what I started seeing more of this year. And I think it was because of the screen share and a lot of this virtual planning, there were um, spaces where, where it wasn't enough just to have a content objective for a lesson. Uh, teachers started noticing that we needed to be more um, clear and consistent with also having language objectives. So the planning started being um, uh, a lot more um, intentional because you have uh, these students in your on your screen or in going into small groups or breakout rooms or all of that um, and, and making sure that all of that work was connected to what you were initially presenting with the lesson. So I've seen a lot of modification of curriculum, targeted planning with language objectives. There's a lot more multimodal work and mm -hmm. that's been exciting to me to see um, teachers getting the support to build more tech sets that are around um, not only um, hard copy of a book, if they're getting it into students' hands, but also using videos and poetry and animated poetry and all of the stuff that we love. So that's been exciting. And for me, that key piece that thank you, Luz, for mentioning that, that I've observed that's giving me hope is that um, 
schools noticing the need for more social emotional learning and just support of students processing of what they've been through and that's what we should have been doing in the beginning like hello i mean that's what i hope that in school you see the whole child and you're like oh yes i want to make sure you know about this book but i also are you okay like are you in a space that you can learn or you know so um that's what we 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 think about the whole child and that's what we hope all, all buildings get support for um and i'm I'm just thankful that that's what I've seen in my visits this year, that people that's at the forefront, you know, um, of, of their mind is thinking like, how are students feeling? How are they processing? Are they having the support? What are the, the support systems? Like what are, what's the staff, the system, what do we have in our school that can actually support students to process this and moving forward? I hope we don't forget that. And I mentioned that in my own, uh, the survey sent out at my college for the teacher ed program where I've been at when they said like what's the one of the most important things you learn across the year I said we need to have this at the forefront to support our teachers like our grads we got to think about their overall well-being um, and not only that this is during that they're doing a, a grad program during a pandemic but also beyond so I hope that we can also remember that with our k-12 schooling too yeah yeah, so much there to uh, uh, to unpack for sure. Um, but for for our final question, um, really want to um, kind of pivot a little bit to think about just the the very nature of um, an existence of bilingual education over time um, mm -hmm. in our society, because it is something that has gone from you know being. Uh, marginalized, right, as uh, sometimes legally so, or even just um, culturally in very strong ways, uh, being sort of pushed to the margins um, of, uh, of the field of education to now being something that, you know, some of the, um, you know, more affluent folks who still participate in the public school system seek out intentionally, right, dual immersion programs and, um, and that sort of thing. So we've seen this kind of reversal of like, uh, you know, uh, sort of learn English uh, and nothing else kind of approach to now this kind of boutique uh, you know, way to retain middle class families in, you know, in, in large school systems. So um, in that context, in that context, I'm wondering if, if um, and uh, Dr. Yadida Herrera, maybe we'll, we'll start with you. I'm wondering if uh, you can give us some thoughts about, uh, you know, your thoughts about the evolution of bilingual education in that way, and also how we can ensure that um, our students who are language minoritized are, are given access to the, the the uh, affirming, supportive uh, environment of bilingual education in their schooling experience. Exactly. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And one of our friends and colleagues, Dr. Nelson Flores, he teaches at UPenn, he's going to be publishing a book on this topic um, coming up. He's working on his book now, and I'm so excited uh, for it to be out in the world. But um, absolutely. Uh, Bilingual education was essentially dismantled with Prop 227 in, um, in the 90s. I was a student um, coming up in California when that was all happening. And so that's why I didn't personally receive a bilingual education. But um, it was recently overturned. This Prop 227 was recently overturned, um, not recently, in 2016 with Prop 58, as you all know, right? And um, this had, you know, this has increasingly uh, led to this expansion across the state and even California actually 
I'm very pleased that um, the state budget allocated $75 million specifically to support teacher residencies that were focused in three areas, bilingual education, uh, STEM, and also special education. And so that is why um, um, well, these competitive grants, they were uh, a, districts were able to apply for them and then partner with a higher institution uh, of education to bring about these teaching residencies. That's how I'm able to work with the, with the bilingual teacher uh, residency now. But um, just to, to what you said earlier, there had to be some sort of um, pivot, right, from this grassroots nature of bilingual education that is, you know, for, by the people, right, demanded and for the people to, to make it more appealing to more affluent families. And so that's when you went from being called bilingual education to being called dual immersion or dual language, really getting away from that B word. And a historian, James Crawford, talks about how bilingual education became the B word. And so that's why you have districts saying dual language immersion, dual language education. They will try to stay away from the B word. And so that's why we use bilingual education every chance we get. Or sometimes people have used uh, dual language bilingual education to reinforce that it is still a bilingual education. So um, definitely, and there's a lot of scholarship, growing scholarship on the concept of uh, gentrification of dual language bilingual education. That's been really interesting. But I think absolutely we have to just make sure that we are, we have to make sure that we have um, we make sure that we have access to our language minoritized communities. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, we can't, we shouldn't offer bilingual. I think everybody should have a bilingual education, right? Uh, but we making sure being really intentional about not excluding uh, communities of color. And Carla, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I'm glad you started mentioning uh, Nelson Flores book that will come out soon. Um, you can right now see his um, educational linguist uh, blog. So that's a great resource for now to see um, how he's been tracking the ways that bilingual education is presented uh, depending on the community. So if it's just like white affluent community and it's being celebrated and the kinds of programs that they have, like those are the descriptions of those programs get make it to the New York Times. And it's like, wow, we've got these great you know, bilingual dual language programs, um, but not the ones that I taught in, right? Like, so, so what's, what's up with that? So I'm, I'm thankful that there are people writing about this. Um, but in terms of, for those of you watching and listening, I think there are many ways that we can make sure that language minoritized students have access to bilingual education. And one of the ways is to make uh, these dynamic language practices um, the norm, right? That they that as they are in our communities, and how do we uh, make sure that there isn't a separation between what's happening with the beautiful um, many literacies practiced by our children in their homes, and how do we make sure that that doesn't get lost when they get to school? So, if you're a librarian, like making sure that your library has books that show examples of these dynamic language practices in different languages, right? And so you have these beautiful bilingual, multilingual texts, and there's a rich um, history also to see the ways that um, before our texts were mostly published in these like very separated ways where you had one language on one page and one language on the other. And now we see more uh, books being published with dynamic language practices or there being a lot of uh, books being translated. So I think 
as a librarian, I think for librarians, making sure that that's accessible for, for children to see that in their schools, in their classroom libraries. Um, from an administrator standpoint, if you're making decisions around curriculum, making sure that the curriculum that you're um, supporting your teachers with brings that reality to the learning spaces. And if it doesn't, then does your professional development offering bring that kind of support? Right. And so I think at different levels, whether you're a librarian, a teacher designing curriculum or an administrator making those uh, decisions as to who will you bring into your building or into your virtual spaces for professional learning, are they all people that are also um, looking at language learning and language teaching in a more dynamic way and centering the practices of language minoritized children? If not, then I always ask the principals I work with and teachers I, I collaborate with in partner schools, I ask them why. Why do you select this curriculum? Why do you select this kind of PD offering? Um, what is it bringing to your learning community? Um, and then most important is, is that connection with the families and communities. Like, are, are we only reaching out to our families and communities when it's like, you know, parent-teacher night and we're um, discussing an upcoming assessment? Like, is that because what does that say about what we value from these communities? And so I'm glad, Luz, that you mentioned that, right? That, that we, we must engage and have that kind of woven through our school year to make sure that um, language minoritized children get access to bilingual education so that it's at all levels. And I feel like the project that we were both on, the CUNY NICEP project is a beautiful example. That's uh, City University of New York, New York State Initiative on Emergent Bilinguals. And that project had administrators, teachers, grad students, researchers all involved in developing this like multilingual ecology of a school building. And um, that for me has just been a beautiful project to be a part of. And as a model for other spaces too, that you can, you can bring, you can have more of that connection with the community. And I think the last, the last mentor example that I'll share is um, Angela Valenzuela's work as well in, in Texas and Austin and thinking about um, La Academia Coatli que tiene um, conexiones con la comunidad. No? So there's these like beautiful, um, beautiful history that the children are learning in these community spaces. And there are these partnerships with the University of Texas at Austin and also um, with the researchers. So I think it's thinking about those spaces that we can create for learning so that um, we can push more of this forward. So I'm, I'm hopeful we have these wonderful examples too. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, there's so much more to talk about uh, with you, uh, with you both. And I think um, it's fair to say at, at some point we would love to um, to have you back on to to dig even deeper into these issues. Um, but um, definitely want to extend a huge thanks to our guests today, uh, Dr. Lucia Dira Herrera and Dr. Carla Espana who are, of course, the co-authors of the new book, um, En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences uh, of Bilingual Latinx Students. And um, where, where can folks get a hold of this, uh, of this book if they would like to, to read it and learn more about your work? Well, uh, we invite you to visit our website. It's um, En Comunidad Collective. Dot com and you can have uh, you'll have the links there to to find it. It's available through our publisher Heinemann and wherever you might buy your books normally. Thank you so much. 
Wonderful. Yeah. And shout, shout out to Heinemann, um, doing mm-hmm. lots of, uh, lots of good work in the field of education there. Um, and of course, want to make sure also folks that we don't forget that, um, our two amazing guests today are going to be, uh, featured speakers at the upcoming Dismantling White Supremacy Culture in Schools conference, um, hosted by good friend of the show, uh, Joe Truss and featuring not only these two amazing scholars and practitioners in our field, but also the, the likes of, uh, Goldie Muhammad, Bettina Love and uh, Ibram X. Kendi. So um, see all the heavy hitters um, at that mm-hmm. conference and you can find out more about it at dismantlewsc.com. That's uh, dismantlewsc.com. Uh, folks, we've come to the end of today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. <laughs> Ciao. All right, folks, it's that time of the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, who are we shouting out today? Well, Manuel, uh, today we have huge props, uh, huge props to give to um, an educator who uh, has not only made a tremendous impact at her school, a tremendous impact in her district, a tremendous impact across her entire state, but has now recently been named the National Teacher of the Year. Um, This, of course, is none other than um, Juliana Urtube, um, who is a elementary educator coming out of Las Vegas. Um, and let's give you a little bit of information about her. Um, Ms. Urtube is a passionate educator and advocate. Um, she was, of course, the 2020-21 Nevada State Teacher of the Year. Um, she is the first Latinx Nevada State Teacher of the Year since at least 1992. Uh, Ms. Urtube holds, of course, a bachelor's in bilingual elementary ed and a master's degree in special education from the University of Arizona. She's a national board certified teacher, um, currently is also a hybrid educator, as many folks are across the country, at Booker Elementary School in Las Vegas, where she serves as a co-teacher in pre-kindergarten through fifth grade special ed settings, and as an instructional strategist developing school-wide multi-tiered system of supports for academic, social, emotional, and behavior interventions. Um, now, Miss Urtube is warmly known as Miss Earth, love that, uh, for her work in beautifying the school and advocating for and unifying the school community with gardens and murals. Miss Urtube is um, a National Board for Professional Teaching Standards Teaching Fellow, a Nevada Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow, an Underwood Teacher Fellow and Mentor, and a Nevada Department of Education Superintendent Teacher Advisory Council Member. Um, the lists go on and on, uh, oh. Manuel, of course, of her many contributions um, to uh, her local community and the profession at large. And and, you know, got to say uh, props and congratulations to an amazing educator, um, a, uh, a beautiful to see um, a Latinx uh, woman, you know, representing for the state of Nevada um, and someone who is has spent her career serving many of the students who are often most marginalized within our public school system and assuring their success. So props. Congratulations yep. to our National Teacher of the Year. Yeah, super dope, super dope. Now, I first learned about her through the Two Dope Teachers podcast. So shout out to Two Dope Teachers. Um, before she was even named, they you know, they had her on their show, and I learned so much about her work. Super phenomenal, super phenomenal, super dope. And uh, speaking of which, I, 
I hear that perhaps Two Dope Teachers will be making a, a short guest appearance on an upcoming All of the Above episode. Perhaps the next full episode, perhaps, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I do know for a fact that on July 23rd, this summer, Educolor is host, hosting a virtual summit and Juliana is one of the keynote speakers. So for those who don't know, Educolor is a super dope organization that advances the work of, of educators especially educators of color, especially educators who are committed to educational justice and Educolor, the virtual summit I went last year, super dope, super refreshing. I really needed that, that healing space. So I highly suggest if you like any of the content on our show, you probably would be interested in hearing Juliana speak at the Educolor summit this, this summer. So July 23rd, virtual summit. Find out more at summit.educolor.org. Yeah. All right, Jeff, I think that about does it, man. Anything else? No, man, well, I think that's it. Uh, folks, thanks so much for watching today's uh, show or listening to today's show. And uh, make sure you check out all of our content online. Our website is aotashow.com. That's aotashow.com. There you can find the links to everything. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the places for all the streams. Um, check out our content. Give us the thumbs up, uh, subscribe, and most importantly, share what you hear um, here on All the Above with, with colleagues, friends, uh, neighbors, folks who might also find it interesting. So we appreciate you and we'll see you next time.